Lord. Well, it is Mother's Day, and so I thought I'd talk about a message that certainly comes within the framework of our series that continues on this week called For This We Have Jesus, Dealing with the Hard Things of Life. Because I think mothers have one of the most difficult jobs in all the world, and that's managing relationships. <laughs> there, uh, Most mothers uh, have been married to a spouse that hasn't always made things difficult or easy for them, has often made things difficult. If they're a mother, they've often found times when being a mom can present interesting and new challenges. And they've also got their own relationships, their family, their friends, and these interactions. And so we look and we consider, what does it look like for us to seek and chase after healthy relationships? Because in any way, shape, or form, we are involved in relationships. Just by the sheer fact that you are sitting next to someone right now, you are involved in a relationship. If you don't know the person you're sitting next to, it's a very shallow relationship. If you're not sitting next to anyone, there's people near you. So you're involved in relationships around you. But then as we go deeper, we find that relationships can sometimes present challenges. It can be hard to understand the perspective of one another. It can be hard to see the lenses that they're looking through and see how that makes any sense. It can be hard to understand why would someone or why would this group of people, why would my employer, why would my employees, why would my friends, why would my family make a decision that impacts others in such a way and not understand that? I suspect that all of us have asked at least one of those questions. Have we not? We've wrestled with to put it simply in, in the more Mike bluntness, why can't we all just get along? And we long for that. And we want that. And that's a healthy thing to want. But sometimes we're afraid to do the heavy lifting to get there. And as long as there is sin in this world, and as long as there is you and I in this world, we won't always all just get along. So let's get that out of the way first. It's just not going to happen. However, there are ways to fill up what uh, the Chapmans call our love tanks. And I'm not going to go through the five love languages. If you've heard of those or if you've been to our marriage course, you've become familiar with the, the idea that we each kind of speak our own language of love, whether it's words of affirmation, which would be one of mine, or the giving of gifts or the works of service or a couple others that I have suddenly forgotten, so we're going to move past that. But what if this morning I could point you to Scripture and say there is a surefire way to fill up the love tanks of those you're involved in relationship with all the time, whether they want to experience that or not? Because the passage we're going to look at today gives us the blueprint for that. It does not promise that those that are receiving the love will always receive it as well as we would like them to. This is not me promising that as you walk through these and this, this is how you live your life, everything will go easy for you. But what I can promise is that if you seek to live out the truth of God's word in your relationships in the manner that follows the scriptures, you'll see a difference in some of these relationships. The other person may not change, but your heart will. That I promise you if you'll bear with me for the next few minutes. So with that, would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? 
Uh, this is one of my all-time favorite passages to teach out of because it never stops being applicable. As long as I've been in ministry, as long as I've been reading the Bible and understanding what it had to say, I've always come back to Ephesians 3 and 4 and found great comfort and conviction. Conviction is a fancy way of saying challenge of, whoa, I could do so much better in these areas. And I've always found that in the verses we're going to look at today. So we're going to start by looking first at the idea of building healthy relationships out of a prayer of the Apostle Paul. On the screen, you're going to see Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. I'm going to back up and add a little bit of context and start at verse 14. So if you see that you're not getting all the scriptures, open your Bibles or get your digital devices out and follow along with me starting in verse 14. But Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this. He says, for this reason... And he's he's asking the church not to be discouraged for their suffering. He's asking for the church to keep pressing on. And he's about to introduce them to his prayer for the church. And the church at Ephesians was a younger church. They needed a lot of encouragement, a lot of help. And so that's what Paul was doing. He was giving them the groundwork. And then he was saying, this is how you live it out. This is how you work it out. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling is how he would say that in Philippians. And here he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Why? Because we are all made in the image of God. Because we are all created by him, our one and true creator. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As James taught us, faith without works is dead. And so Paul is going to challenge us to live out that faith. And he says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, living out that love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, normally I would stop there and I would preach a message based on that, but that's just Paul getting warmed up this morning. And there's only one point I want to make out of this very full text, and there's a lot more. Memorize this passage. It's worth it. This is one of those passages you carry with you and you pray for yourself and for others that as we walk this journey of following Jesus, we would live in the power and the fullness of the Spirit of God together, together with all the saints. Do you hear that? He invites us into that journey together. You can't do it together without building relationships, right? But as he prays this, As he asks us to do it together, his prayer is that we would grasp something. We would grasp how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Just out of curiosity, can anybody explain to me how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ? Well, we know there's a song that says deep and wide, wait, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. No? Nothing? 
Can we ever get to the end of the love of Christ? Okay, let's try again. We're waking up. We're getting there. Can we ever get to a point where we understand the fullness of who God is and how he's experienced through his son, Jesus Christ, and his miraculous work, dying and raising again? No, we cannot. There is never a time when I will boldly stay up, stand up in front of you and say, I know everything there is to know about the love of God. If I say that, fire me, please. Because I will spend the rest of my life hopefully growing in knowledge and depth of insight and inviting you into the same. Why are we so passionate about discipleship? Why are we looking at a discipleship pastor? Because we want to be the church that says we are joyfully following Jesus wherever he leads us. And as we do, hey, you want to come with us. You want to grow with us as we seek to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the very love of Jesus Christ. But by the way, we'll never get there this side of eternity. So let's enjoy the treasure hunt while we're here. We were talking in small group last night, or community group, sorry, my title was wrong because our group is not small at this point. Uh, and in our community group, we were looking at the James passage that talks about faith without works is dead. And one of the men in the group looked up and he says, you know, often we look at this idea of working for the Lord as like hard work. And he said, it is. And we all agreed there are times when the work for the Lord is very hard. But he said, shouldn't it be a great joy that everything in our lives is pointed toward him? Isn't it more like a treasure hunt where each day we wake up and say, Lord, what would you have for me today? And every, the room just went about as silent as it is right now because we were all like, Oh, yeah. Doesn't that change everything? When we consider the perspective with which we approach every morning, and we say, Lord, here's my day. I'm already not looking forward to it, and I'm not out of bed yet. But it is your day. What would you have for me as I seek to know you today? You see, before we can begin to focus on how do we build healthy relationships, we must first grasp even a fraction of the love of Jesus Christ. Before we can get into building healthy relationships, we have got to commit ourselves to the work of knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised again victoriously. Him who made a way for us to spend eternity worshiping and glorifying and honoring God, living in a perfect and whole relationship with our Lord, our God, and our King. We will spend an eternity learning what it means to love a God that loved us so much that he would make a way for our sins, for our failures, for our mistakes to be paid for and not counted against us. We should spend the rest of our earthly lives seeking to grasp even a small understanding of what it means when Paul writes in Romans that he who knew no sin, he who didn't commit any wrongdoing whatsoever, became, literally put the clothes of sin on himself, bore it on himself so that we might become the very righteousness of God. That is what it means to grasp even a little bit of the love of Christ. 
that he who knew no sin would become sin for us, that we might not just know what righteousness is like, that we might not just have this eternal checklist of I'm good enough today. We talked about that in week one. But that in following Jesus Christ, we would learn that our righteousness is already secure in the work Jesus Christ has already done. And that when he returns, those that have called upon the name of Jesus, his sons, the sons and daughters of the Most High God, adopted into the family because of what Jesus has done, making us co-heirs with Jesus. When he comes back, he welcomes us forever into that family and he collects his own. And he says, I want you, Paul is praying, that the church would begin to spend their days seeking to grasp and live out how wide and high and long and deep that love is. N.T. Wright says that this is a summons of people to believe in Jesus as the risen Lord and King and to give him our complete and undivided allegiance for the rest of our lives. You see, so often we say, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And people will say, yes but their lives don't look like that. They're not waking up daily and grasping the love of Jesus Christ. They're not inviting Christ into their lives and saying, what would you have for me today? How can I experience your work as I read from your word? How can I show your love as I walk along the streets of Hong Ham, of Taipo, of Daiwai, of Shatin, of Hong Kong Island, the dark side, of wherever you might be? Yes, I said that out loud. Sorry for our few islanders. You got to say it every once in a while. But if we are to grasp the very love of Christ, it's going to come with effort. But as we do, it's going to be this joyful adventure of saying, Lord, you had so much more in store for me than I could ever imagine. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God has way more for us than we have dared dream imaginable? That the thing that is holding us back isn't our finances. It isn't our vocation. It isn't any of those things that we blame. It's a lack of faith that has said that my allegiance isn't fully with the Lord. I dare say in this room, there are some of you right now that know the Lord is inviting you to big or small things. His ministry is both big and small. It happens on the very epic level of grand proportions. We're going to talk about the Wesley brothers and their mother later on this morning. And it also happens on the very emic proportions, on the very small, the micro level. As we heard from somebody in our small group last night, one of the most life-changing moments of her life was she was going on a run one morning a few years ago and someone, as she ran by them, looked at her and said, God be with you and go before you. And she was going through a a difficult time at that moment. And as that person had loved her enough, a stranger that had much less than she did, did, said that to her. Her heart was softened. Her mind was quickened and she was drawn to a place of grasping the very wonderful love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because a stranger loved her enough just to speak a little bit of truth into her life for a moment such as this. 
But what if you're more like me, where you get so focused on wherever you have to be next that we haven't taken a moment to grasp how wide, how high, I don't know how long, and how deep is the very love of Christ. How do we do that? Well, we do it a few ways. Spend real time in his word. Enjoy it. I'll be honest, this week has just been a very difficult week for me. I've been discouraged on a number of fronts that you don't need to hear about. And even my Bible reading felt very robotic this week. You know, even pastors can wrestle with that from time to time. And I felt like the scriptures were there and we're making our way through Song of Solomon. And I've got an amazing wife and that's still a weird book to read for me. Uh, And we're going through the other passages and we've dove into Isaiah And all of a sudden, I woke up this morning and I opened the word and I said, Lord, before I review my message for today, I just need to spend some extra time with you because I don't feel like being Pastor Mike today. And as I confessed that to him, he just opened my eyes and we entered into reading through a few chapters in Hebrews. And it was like every word was meant for me right where I needed him to be. And he was there. But so often, my schedule dictates that I don't have time. i got to get through this to the next point. I want to invite you, as you consider relationships, before you start looking at how to fix other people, we ask the question, Lord, am I living in the fullness of your Holy Spirit, living out the love that you have given in the person of Jesus Christ? Have I grasped at what cost you have given me your love? And I, am I approaching relationships with that sort of graceful perspective? Because apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, remember, we have no claim to access to God. We have no claim to forgiveness apart from what Jesus has done for us and on our behalf. We are broken and we cannot fix ourselves. But when we grasp what he has done and who he is, He invites us not only to bask in the glory of the love of Christ. He invites us to change how we look at relationships. And that's what I want us to talk about now. I know that's a long time to introduce one point. But before, I believe, we can be a church that has transformed relationships inside our doors and outside our doors It has to start with the heart that is in tune and wholly devoted to the person of Jesus Christ. Am I asking you to be perfect? Absolutely not. All I'm asking is that you say, Lord, here's my life. What would you have for me today? How might I follow you as I learn from your word, as I walk with others? And as you do, look at what Paul urges us toward as he moves on. And his prayer, and he's talking about as a prisoner for the Lord, he's in prison, and so he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I get that this can come with sacrifice, but I want to call you, church, to a place of unity, and unity doesn't come without work. So Paul Duffy Robbins, a youth professor for many, many years, said there are four muscles that are involved in building healthy community. But actually, I would say there's five aspects to it that we're going to look at this morning briefly. And Paul explains them perfectly. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I just told you what that calling was, to grasp the good news of Jesus Christ and to give him away. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not meant for us to hold on to just as ourselves. We are invited to give him away every chance we get. Whether it be as you see somebody running by and you say, God bless you, go get them and keep running because I'm not. Don't say the last part. Or as we mourn with those who mourn, as we weep with those who weep, as we rejoice with those who rejoice, as we walk with those families that are raising their children in difficult times, in difficult circumstances. The manner worthy of our calling is the gospel calling of Jesus Christ. That our lives will be constantly lived embracing and rejoicing in the grace we have been given and therefore giving that away. So how might we do that? Well, now it might get a little harder because he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And go ahead and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Interestingly, in this very short few statements that Paul makes, he doesn't tell us to argue for our agendas, does he? He doesn't tell us to prove how right we are, does he? He doesn't tell us to tell the other person how wrong they are, does he? Now, in the cases of sin, there are certainly times when the church and the people in the church need to do that. Don't misunderstand me. But far too often, we're really good at the criticism and far worse at the giving grace away that we have been given, grasping the love and fullness of Jesus Christ. And so Paul invites the church to a posture that is straight out of who Jesus is. And the first part is we will approach others with humility, with lowliness. Lowliness uh, is the word that this was often translated in many other translations, use lowliness. Um, but the NIV that we use says humility, and both work because they both explain the idea of considering others as better or more important than ourselves. But see, this was a revolutionary concept when Paul was writing this. None of the ancient civilizations valued lowliness at all. Much like today, the Greeks would never use this word for humility in any sort of positive connotation. This was also always a disparaging context of servile, subservient slavishness. In other words, it was always put down when it was referred to. And Paul chooses that word. But then as he writes it, he used it in a way of saying that humility or lowliness means to see yourself the way God sees you, with infinite value. Remember Psalm 139 that we read as our call to worship this morning? You were fearfully and wonderfully made. God made you valuable. Do we believe that? Okay, now who's that hard person you can't get along with right now? Oh no, I just answered too soon. Because what comes next? If God had enough love to make you valuable, did he not make the other person of great value? Are they not worthy of the same honor that has bestowed upon us? 
But Mike, you don't understand. You're right. I don't understand your situation. I got my own baggage. And that's hard enough. But the word Paul uses is an actual lowliness of mind that says we're going to recognize the worth and value of other people with the same humble mind that led Jesus Christ to empty himself and become a servant, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant or a slave. Would we do that when we look at those relationships that are hard? Would we consider that sort of perspective that we look at the person we're having a hard time getting along with and the first thought in our mind, and I'm trying not to make eye contact with anybody so you don't think I have a conflict with you, so I'm looking at the computer screen in the back. You have great value even though you are a PC. You have great value even though I am really struggling to get along with you right now. Now, it's not always good to say that last part out loud. But when we look at people, do we look at them with the value with which God looked upon us that he would give us his only son? Lowliness and humility. You want to build healthier relationships, it starts there. And I am a hypocrite. I struggle with this. I wish I could say that I got this all figured out and I'm the most humble person alive, but if I said that, I would have just failed. We all can wrestle with the pride that comes from wanting to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. But Jesus didn't. He emptied himself and became a servant. The next thing, well, there you go, the humble recognition of the worth and value of other people. And it's also the humble mind, which I already read this to you, but I'll read it again because it's important. The humble mind, which was in Christ and led him to empty himself and become a servant. So the first point is humility. We approach people with humility. Look at the value you've got. And the second point is with gentleness or meekness. The gentleness of the strong is strength that's under control. What do I mean there? Well, I re referenced a, a hero of mine earlier that I've been learning about lately. Her name was Susanna. Anybody ever heard of Susanna Wesley? You may not, unless you were paying attention to Howard Robinson about six years ago when he preached and he referenced her slightly. But Susanna Wesley, in and of herself, could claim to be the mother of modern homeschooling. Did you know that? Now, I'm not saying that all of you should go out and homeschool your kids because this woman, this saint, did it and did it very well. She was an amazing woman. But all her life, she was fighting uphill battles of one way or another. But throughout, because her mom and dad... Uh, she was the youngest of 25 children. Now, at that time, <laughs> go ahead and think about that. How long were mom, was mom pregnant? 20 years. We did the math last night. 20 years of pregnancy. Whew! Oh, see? And she was the youngest. Talk about having the baby child syndrome. Now, in that day and age, a few hundred years ago, not all of the children would survive and make it. But even such... Susanna grew up in a home that sought to follow God, and her dad was a, a prominent minister and theologian, and Susanna sought to read everything and learn everything she could about following God. And she was one of the most disciplined people you will ever read about. The woman's life was so ordered 
It was unbelievable. And even today, she is known as to be one of the great quiet theologians ever to live because she understood what it meant not only to know about God, but to teach others to follow him and what that meant. She herself had 19 children. So she, you know, she was a little behind. Unfortunately, nine of those died while they were young. Three sons and seven daughters survived. And of those, John Wesley became the father of the Methodist Church, where over 80 million people have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He was part of a massive revival movement that for the first time really in the history of church, as the Reformation was springing into action and as things were happening like never before, John Wesley's eyes were opened. I could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We think today like that's nothing. Like we say that right off the top of tip of our tongues that this is just a normal thing. But in that day and age, it was anything but. And as John was, his eyes were open to the truth of that relationship with Jesus. What did he do? Well, he did what his mom had taught me. His life was ordered in such a way that he wanted to teach others to follow the same. And so he followed the Lord. His brother Charles, not to be outdone, I mean, these are, these are prolific family members. The dude wrote 6,000 hymns. We couldn't sing that if we kept meeting for church for years and years and years. Some of them you may recognize. And I would tell you about them, but I forgot. Oh, no, I did. I pulled them out. What a... And you'd recognize, hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Christ the Lord is risen today. We sing it every Easter. These brothers understood not just what it meant to know about God, but to know who God is and to have a personal relationship with them. And where did that come from? That came from the strength that was in their mother because their dad would disappear at times. Their dad was not a responsible man. He was a Christian man. He was a pastor in a, in a, in a variety of settings, but he struggled in his life. But mom was the linchpin. And at one point, dad saw fit to criticize his, his wife, Susanna, in a letter. And I want to illustrate meekness to you from the words of Susanna herself. She said this, because what had happened was their church was struggling and she was concerned that the word of God was not being taught. And so, well, how do you deal with the word of God not being taught? Well, your husband, for all his faults, is a gifted writer and has written many good sermons. And her father also was a gifted writer who had met and written many good sermons. So why doesn't she invite whoever wants to come over to her house on Sunday afternoons and listen to her read those sermons? She didn't even dare because in that day and age, it wouldn't have been appropriate for a woman to preach her own. But what she would do is read the sermons of her father and of her husband. And unfortunately, this made the pastor of the local church who was struggling and not doing a very good job of teaching the word um, discontent to say the least, angry to be more honest. And so he complained to Susanna's husband and this then led to Susanna's husband writing her and asking her gently to stop. Always a good idea. And this was Susanna's response. This is meekness. This is knowing who you are in Christ. Listen to what she says. If you do, after all, think fit to dissolve this assembly... Do not tell me that you desire me to do it, for that will not satisfy my conscience. But send me your positive command 
in such full and express terms as may absolve me from guilt and punishment for neglecting this opportunity of doing good when you and I shall appear before the great and awful tribunal of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me explain what she's saying there. You are my husband, and I will submit to you if this is what you want me to do. But in so doing, I will submit understanding that it is you that are taking responsibility for these people not hearing the word of God. Are you comfortable with that? But she did it in a way that was biblically obedient and meek. Strength that was under control. And guess what her husband's response was to a perfect theological and biblical response? Keep going. And the church grew larger than it had ever been. Strength that's under control, meekness, is having the strength and courage to do what's right, but knowing the time and the way to do it that is pleasing and honoring to God and giving value to the other person as you go through the process. Meekness is not easy, but it is so imperative in the life of the church because we can all look around and say all the wrongs that are happening, but how we handle them and how we walk through life is imperative. Susanna Wesley sought to make sure the word of God was spread, but also that her husband knew that she would honor him. And there are times when people need to know both of those about us, that we would honor someone even as we don't agree with them. Would we do that? If we're willing to do that, you'll see a difference in relationships. I promise. might not be easy, but it will come. Then the next one. Oh, boy. <laughs> patience. I don't have to say much about patience. I just have to invite you to pray for it. Okay? So at the end of today, go home and pray for patience. And I promise you, within 10 minutes, the Lord will give you an opportunity to practice. Okay? You see, patience is not a natural tendency for any of us. It is believing God's timetable is good, no matter what it is. Let me repeat that again from Max Anders. Patience is believing God's timetable is good, no matter what that timetable is. Oh, man. The week I've had in the situations that I've watched unfold around me, I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? He is sovereign. Sovereign means he reigns. He's in control. And he sees how this will work out in ways that I don't yet see. And he's got a plan. Will I wait with him in that? If those that I'm engaged in relationship with at any level don't get what I need them to get, will I try to push them and kick them to understand it? That would be much easier. Or I will bring it back to the Lord in lowliness and meekness and say, Father, I trust you with the situation. And when you would have me speak, I'll speak. And when you would have me be silent, I'll be silent. And I will be confident that you'll let me know the difference. Will we be that kind of patient in the relationships we wrestle with? Then there's one more, because Paul just wants to make sure we get it all and make sure that he didn't give us easy tasks that can only be done, or that he gives us tasks that can only be done through the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. He says, bear with one another. We will approach others by bearing with each other. What does that mean? Hold each other up, even when they're dragging. Somebody might be just 
oh, just a mess. And they need someone, and they are so draining of your time and energy, but they need someone. Bear with them. Say, I know you've got faults, you've got sores and wounds, and so do I, but we're going to walk through this together. Uh, Ace Kevington says, to bear with uh, another, literally hold him up, is to put up with his faults and idiosyncrasies, knowing that we've got our own. So when we look around in our church family, when we look around in our biological family, when we look around in our vocational family, our job families, whatever, when we look around in all of these relationships and we look at all the faults of everybody else, take a deep breath for a moment and remember a couple of things. First, oh man, the list of faults we have is probably pretty long if we were honest with ourselves. And second, we were invited to grasp the very love of Jesus Christ that has washed us by his own blood and forgiven us of our sins. And he bore with us. And even so, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am humble and gentle. And we're called to bear with one another. Finally, how do we bear with one another? Well, it's pretty amazing. These are all aspects of a loving relationship, first with Christ, that then is spilled out into how we treat one another. It always starts with grasping the love of Christ. If we are not in love with the person and uh, reality of who Jesus Christ is and walking with him led by the Holy Spirit as we engage in his word and fall more deeply in love with him in good times and bad times, We can't do these other things. We won't do them in our own strength. But out of love for him, we will follow his example in lowliness, in gentleness and meekness, in patience, bearing with one another in love. Do they deserve it? No, but neither did we. Yeah, I get to call myself a saint, not because I'm so great. I'm amazing. But it's not about that. It's about who Jesus is. I'm only amazing because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and I have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, the righteousness that is upon me is not my own because my own is filthy and dirty and smelly and stinky. But Jesus Christ has washed me clean and I wear the righteousness of God. And because of his great grace and his great love, I can joyfully consider others as better than myself. Myself, I don't have multiple personalities. These four traits that bind us together, John Stott claims, they form the very core of our inner being and they'll make a difference in every relationship we encounter. The easy ones, the hard ones, all of them. And so how do we respond? Well, if we are basking in the rich, full love of Christ, others will bask in that same love through our love for them in lowliness and humility in meekness, in patience, in bearing with one another in love. And they'll see a difference in us. And our relationships will change. I'm not saying it'll happen overnight, but would you walk with me on this journey? That we pray that we would grasp the very love of Christ and that we would ask him to help us to be lowly and he'll give us practice to be humble, to be gentle and patient to bear with one another's, knowing that he's 
bearing with us right now. In so doing, would we invite others into the same? Let's pray. I'm going to have the worship team come forward and the ushers prepare for the offering. Lord, it is a great privilege to know you and to be known by you. And I confess that there's so much left that I have to learn about who you are. But I pray that our lives as your people would be ordered in such a way that we go into relationships with humility, with gentleness, with patience and forbearance because you've done that for us. My prayer for our church family is that they would know how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the very love of Christ and that we would do it together as your saints and that we would invite others into this way of love and that our relationships would be changed, whether it's immediately or slowly. Lord, may the patience rest with you. And so now as we give of our tithes and offerings this morning and as we commit our Mothers, into your hands, would you be pleased with how we engage in relationships with those that know you and those that don't yet know you? May our approach be the same, one of love out of the love you have given us.